Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I hope you're having a great day. I love this time we have together. And I've been studying um, a lot of Psalms this summer and loving it. I just uh, realized the more you study God's Word, the more rich it becomes, the more excited I become about it. And, you know, there's, there's, I don't have all kinds of answers to all my questions, but that's what I love about my job, because I can come and ask really smart people uh, my questions, I store them up and then spring them on people when they come on the show. So that's kind of fun. But God is absolutely in control of this uh, universe and it's uh, God's world. And, you know, he loves you and you can trust him, not only with your future, but today and every minute of, of every day, you can trust him. And because he is trustworthy, he'll never leave you or forsake you. And I love, uh, I love solid biblical teaching and uh, I love the guests that Come on and just do that very thing. So today's going to be very much like that. Uh, uh, Pastor Brent Kuhlman's going to be joining me, and then uh, Ben Johnson's going to be coming on from the Acton Institute. That is one smart guy. But uh, I would like to um, get things started uh, with Brent. I'm so glad to have Pastor Brent Kuhlman on again. He is the uh, pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. Brent, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you, Bill. Thanks for having me. You bet. And I love going through your website, and I love looking around to see what you're talking about and blogging about and podcasting about. And <laughs> I always think uh, you've got such a great uh, biblical perspective, and you you are a person that speaks with great authority because you go strictly to God's Word. So that's why I love having you on the show. Thanks. Yeah. So I'm looking at the the blog, and you talk about the gift of God's name. And as I read through that, I... Realize the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I'd love a little bit of a um, um, lesson on that. Okay, well, I'd love to, love to talk about it. You know, when I, when I ask uh, people, now it's based on this text, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, whether I'm teaching a Bible class or if I'm doing uh, adult instruction or if I'm doing youth catechesis, when we're studying this text, I'll ask, all right, now, according to this text, and I'll, I'll repeat, I'll say, this text right now that we're reading, what gift does God give you in baptism? And then people will give me all kinds of various answers, but I said, but what does this text say? <laughs> and, then, and then finally we get around to it, and I'll say, let's read it again. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. And then they finally go, is it the name? And I said, yes, <laughs> that's exactly right, the name. And I emphasize this for a reason, because I think Christians have kind of overlooked this. We're so familiar with Matthew twenty-eight nineteen on the going, you know, and making disciples. Right. But sometimes we forget that in the process, how God makes disciples. You know, in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, it's done by two ways, baptizing and teaching. And we're talking about the baptizing right now. So one of the greatest gifts that God gives his people is his name. And one of the reasons that is, I'll illustrate it this way, it's access. By giving you his name, he gives you access to himself. Let me illustrate. 
let's pretend that you and I don't know each other. And you're on the side of the road and you're broke down. And I'm either walking by or driving by and I kind of, you know, slow down and take a look. But, you know, you look weird. So I just I just keep on driving. Now, you you wave your arms and you say, hey, hey, help me. Can you help me? And I, hey, I just you're weird. I keep and going. I just got weirder. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> However, everything changes in our relationship. When I come up to you and I give you my hand and I say, hello, my name is Brent Kuhlman. Now, in the speaking, I gave you my name. And by giving you my name, I give you access to me. So mm-hmm. let's go back to my analogy. So you're stuck on the road. You're broke down. I'm walking by. And you need help. And so what do you say? You say, hey, Brent, can you give me a hand? And I say, oh, yeah, Bill, what do you need? Mm-hmm. And so when God gives you his name, that means you have access to him anytime, anywhere, any place. And what do we call that? We call that prayer, don't we? Mm-hmm. So... Again, to illustrate or to make the point from Matthew twenty nineteen that in baptism, God gives you His name, and when He gives you His name, He gives you access. And one of the ways that you uh, access the Lord is in prayer, calling upon His name. This is why Christians pray, and when they say God, usually implied as Father. And a lot of Christians will usually end their prayer in the name of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Or more formally, more formally in church, like. Um, We'll pray specifically to God the Father, and then we'll end the prayer how? Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, that's the Father, Mm -hmm. and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. In other words, if you don't, if God doesn't give you his name, let's speak of it negatively. If God doesn't give you his name, you don't have access to him. This is very, very important. Mm -hmm. So back to our text, Matthew 28. God gives you his name in baptism. And I've described one of the ways that this is important. He gives you access. Another thing is that when God gives you his name, he gives you himself. Because in the Bible, God and his name always go together. You can never divorce the two. So let me give you an example from Scripture. In Exodus chapter 20, it's verse 24. Remember, the context here is uh, Mount Sinai. Ten commandments have been given. And God tells Moses to build an altar of earth for him, and that he, that's where he says you can offer your sacrifices. And then notice what God says, wherever I cause my name to be honored, notice name, he promises two things. I will come to you, and I will bless you. Now, I'm going to review that so our, our listeners get that down pat, because they've got to learn this biblical truth that I just mentioned. That with God's name, God is there. Or flip it. Where God is, there his name is. So Exodus 20. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and I will bless you. Think of Matthew 18 when Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So my point here in Matthew 28, God gives you his name in baptism. He gives you access. And secondly, He's giving himself to you. He's actually there for you to help you and to bless you, as Exodus 20 teaches, or as Matthew 18, Jesus says. Now, another to connect on this or to piggyback on this even more, it's one thing for God to be God. Now, that's true. God is God. But it's quite another thing when God promises to act and to be God for you graciously 
and salvationally, or as I like to say, salvifically. And so when God gives you his name in baptism, he promises to always be God for you, to be with you, to be gracious, forgiving, etc., to give you salvation. Is that making sense? Tons of sense, and it just it warms my heart as you're saying these words. Well, see, th- we have to make these proper biblical distinctions. Right. God is God. Right. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is when God promises, hey, I'm God for you. And how do you know that? Well, he gave you his name Mm -hmm. in baptism. (laughs) I don't think we have focused on the value of being called by God's name. Right. Or God giving us his name. Or God giving us his name. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And uh, just to push this even further, let's, I want to review what the scriptures teach that not only does God give you access by giving us his name, not only does he promise to be with us, to bless us by giving us his name, but he promises to save us with his name. So you remember um, in Psalm 54, the psalmist says, oh God, save me by your name. And you remember in Acts 2, when Peter is preaching his Pentecost sermon, he quotes Joel 2, when he says, everyone who calls on the, now notice, the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if you're picking up what I'm throwing down, name, <laughs> name of God and salvation go together. Mm-hmm. Let's do some more just for fun. In Matthew 1, you remember Jesus is given the name, or he's given the name Jesus. Uh, You shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Literally, the name Jesus means Yeshua or Yahweh saves. Um, John 20, you believe that you may have life in his name. Life in his name. Acts 4, salvation in no one else, no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 10, to him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now catch this preposition, through his name. So what I've been trying to do, and I hope, I hope this is making sense, Tons of sense. is that in Matthew, in Matthew 28, we've kind of overlooked the great gift that God gives us in baptism. It's his divine and saving name. So one of the things that I like to to continue to teach and preach about this is that when people are baptized, you are on the receiving end of a gift from the Lord. And that is primary. And I can't emphasize that enough. We, when we are baptized, we are on the receiving end of receiving a gift from the Lord. And what is it? It's his name. Well... How's that for you? It's fantastic, Brent. I just, I love all the biblical sources that you brought to this discussion. I love that you're reminding all the listeners about the the enormous gift that we receive when God gives us his name. And through that, we have access to him. And without his name, we don't have access. Right. Let's push that further, shall we, Bill? No, That's why Jesus... In Luke's gospel, you remember when uh, some of you remember Jesus is by himself praying, and then some of his disciples come up to him and they say, "Hey, teach us how to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples." And so Jesus says, "All right, when you pray, pray this way: say, Our Father who art in heaven." Notice it's not generic God, oh God, mm-hmm. but it's the specific God, the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, and again. This is very important. We, 
And notice there's a commandment hooked with this too, Bill, with the name. It's the Well, for Lutherans, it's the second commandment. I don't know how you number the commandments, but for Lutherans, it'd be the second. So uh, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And so how do we properly use God's name that he's given us in baptism? We pray, we give thanks, we praise, etc., by using his name. And, and what's his name? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, what's interesting, if I may, on the 30-day anniversary of 9-11, I was at home, and I turned on the television, and there was a, there was a uh, how, how should we say it, there was a commemoration of 9-11 on the 30th day after it. And the Jewish fire chaplain of New York City and the Christian fire chaplain of New York City held this service together. And the Christian fire chaplain lost his nerve and didn't pray like a Christian. Mm. What do I mean? Well, when he prayed, he just simply said generic God. So who knew what God, to whom he was praying to? He didn't say Father, Son, Holy Spirit, nothing. But most Christians, when they pray in a context like that, they're going to pray to God the Father through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. He didn't do that. Secondly, when they recited the, the uh, Psalm 23 together, guess what? the Christian fire chaplain did not say. Most Christians, after they, after they pray, sing, or say a psalm from the Old Testament, they will always end the psalm this way. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. My point is this, is when that Christian fire chaplain on the 30-day anniversary of 9-11 prayed, God didn't listen to his prayer. Because he didn't use God's name. You only have access to God in prayer by his name. Now let's push this further. You know, we Lutherans were creedal Christians, so we confess the Apostles' Creed. You know, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Well, there's a lot of people in the church, a lot of Protestants who say, you know, we're going to change the creed. And we're not going to refer to God as Father anymore. And we're not going to use these patriarchal terms of Father and Son, etc. So we're going to change the terms. Got news for you. When you no longer confess God according to his name, not only do you not have access to him, but you are committing idolatry itself. And that's what you have in a lot of the new Protestant hymns, by the way. Watch this very carefully. Hmm. They call it what? Gender inclusive language? Right. Or something like that? Neutral inclusive. I forget the name of it. And I think of Psalm 23, Brent, and he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Oh, yes, yes. Thank you for bringing that up. And that's crucial, too, because you remember, for his name's sake, mm-hmm. for example, you remember that when, when Israel is at Mount Sinai, Moses is up on the mountain. This is in the book of Exodus. And remember, uh, he's not coming down the mountain fast enough, and the Israelites tell Aaron, hey, make us God. And so Aaron, you know, to make the long story short, he uh, he says, well, give me all your gold, and he makes a golden calf, and they fall down and worship it. And Moses, of course, is told by the Lord to go down, and you know what he does. But the point is, is that Moses intercedes for the people, but notice how he intercedes. He, he, I'm going to paraphrase. He essentially says, look, your name's at stake here. You've promised to be for these people, so your name's at stake here. Don't start over with me. Don't destroy these people and start over with me. No, they're your people, Moses says. And your name's at stake. Notice how this works all throughout the Scripture. <laughs> God, God is faithful to his what? 
to his name, which mm-hmm. means he as so let's push this how we started with Matthew twenty eight nineteen. So when God gives you his name in baptism, he promises always to be God for you. So you can fall away from what God gives you in baptism. You can lead an unbelieving life for a long time, but God's not going to forsake you. So there's always the opportunity for what? For repentance and faith to come back and say, you know what? God, you promised to be God for me according to your name. I'm claiming that right now again. I repent and I believe. And God will say, yep, that's right. I'm always here for you. Remember the prodigal son, the waiting father? Mm-hmm. Similar, very similar. Yeah. He always remains faithful, doesn't he? Yes. That, and see, that's, what, that's, why, that's why this is certain and sure. Now, you see, if, if baptism is primarily something that I do for God, instead of what I've been emphasizing here from Matthew 28, it's primarily something that God gives to us. Well, then it can never be certain and sure. Do you understand my point? Mm-hmm. If, I'm do- if I'm the one doing the primary activity in baptism instead of God, my works are never certain and sure. But I'm here to tell you that God's are. His gifts are. And that's why, that's why Jesus then, I think, in Matthew 16, 16 says, you know what? You believe and you're baptized? You're saved. That's a promise from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I contend, Bill, that that's based upon his mandate of baptizing all nations in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, mm, I and I think I, this is this is also too. I think why Peter in Acts chapter two, when he says, you know, be baptized every one of you. Now the every one of you matches what it matches the Matthew twenty-eight, make disciples of all nations. So be baptized every one of you, and notice in the name, in the name of Jesus. And what's the promises given for the forgiveness of sins? You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If I may, do we have enough time for me to talk about? being given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We do, but I need to take a break first, and don't you dare lose your momentum, because you're on a roll right now. <laughs> right. All right, Doctor, I'm sorry, Pastor Brent Kuhlman is my guest. He's the senior pastor at uh, Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. We'll take a short break and be right back. show. So glad to have Pastor Brent Kuhlman on the show. Gotten to be kind of a regular guest, and I sure love it because I learned so much when he comes on. And uh, we're um, uh, he's all the way from Murdoch, Nebraska. So uh, right before we went to break, you had something all queued up to tell me. Acts 2, verses 38 to 39. And it matches Matthew 28 in many respects. So for example, Peter says, be baptized every one of you. That matches to make disciples of all nations. And notice it's done in the name, in the name of Jesus. And then he says, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, how in the world can Peter say such things? For the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's based upon Matthew 28, 19, because I've taught us, I've tried to teach our listeners that when Matthew 28, God gives you his divine and saving name. God Mm -hmm. actually gives you himself and everything that he is and everything that he has. So, for example, when you're baptized in the name of the Father— God the Father says, I'm God for you, and everything that belongs to me is yours. Same thing with when you're baptized in the name of the Son. Jesus gives you everything that he is and everything that he has, including what? His Good Friday death, salvation, and forgiveness that goes with it. And when you're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit promises to be God for you and to give himself to you as a gift. So this is why Peter can say, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the 
forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He can say that because you're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, this is just absolutely remarkable, Bill. He says this promise, which one? Well, forgiveness and gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you. For you talk is gift talk in the Bible. For example, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, in like in Matthew 26 and in Mark's Gospel and Luke's and as Paul recounts it in 1 Corinthians 11, notice Jesus says this is for you. He says it over and over again. So my point is, for you talk is always gift talk, which reinforces what I said earlier, that baptism is primarily a gift from the Lord to us. So in Acts 2, Peter says this promise is for you, then he says it's for your children, and then he says it's for all. Interesting, too, that in Acts chapter 22, when Paul recounts when he got baptized, the pastor who baptized him, when Paul recounts it, says, what are you waiting for, man? Get up, be (laughs) baptized, and wash away your sins. Mm -hmm. Oh, and and by the way, the Acts 2 passage and the Acts 22 passage that I just quoted, when Peter says, be baptized in Acts 2, and when Paul says in Acts 22, the Greek grammar there is passive voice. So any of you who are English majors know the difference between active voice and passive voice. Active voice is when you're doing something like, I ran down the street. I'm actually doing something. But when it's passive voice, like it is here in Acts 2 and Acts 22, that means it's done or given to you. But the point now, furthering this in Acts 20, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins. Well, how in the world can that happen? Well, because God gives you his name. And everything that belongs to God, everything that Jesus accomplished on the cross for you, he's now delivering with his divine and saving name in baptism. Brent, I just don't know why I haven't dwelt on that more often, that I have received his name. Well, I I hope this has been edifying for you. Oh, it's been fabulous. It's been great. And I know listeners will be uh, very blessed by this because it's so powerful. Um... And just to be reminded, you know, when you think of Acts 4.12, when Jesus, when, you know, Paul says salvation is to be found in him alone, in all the world there is no other name by which you can be saved. And you think of the power of the name of Jesus, there's nothing that divides a room faster than that. That's right. And when he gives you his name, <laughs> that's the greatest gift. You, it, it, as I like to say, it's salvific. It's salvational. It which is. reinforces the biblical teaching that salvation is purely by grace alone. God's the one giving you the gift. And what's faith doing? Faith says, thanks a ton. (laughs) That's how faith talks. Mm -hmm. Faith says, gift given, gift received, amen. That's how faith Uh, talks when it's given a gift like that. (laughs) It's so so powerful. Um, Again, I think this is um, uh, something that we need to uh, revisit and we need to focus on, we need to think about, and we need to just praise God for what he has given us. His yeah, name. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks be to God for giving us his name. You yeah, betcha. Yeah, so your uh, blog is brentkuhlman.wordpress.com. Is that correct? Oh, boy, I don't know. All I do is just do a Google search, and <laughs> I just type in Brent Kuhlman blog. <laughs> All right, and I'll, I'll instruct my listeners to do the same, Brent Kuhlman, K-U-H-L-M-A-N. And That's right. If they just do, if they do, just type in Brent Kuhlman blog, they should be able to find it. Yeah, terrific. And Brent, as always, so nice to have you on the show, and thank you again for making time to to be with us. You're welcome. God be with you. Bye-bye. On Faith Radio.
Welcome back to the show. Just uh, was contemplating a home project. A friend of mine said, if at first you don't succeed, destroy all the evidence you tried, which is probably what I should be doing. <laughs> I have no business doing home improvement projects because they always cost me like twice the money because you spend the money buying the stuff to try to do the home improvement. Then you got to hire someone to come and fix what you've done. So anyway, there's my problem for today. My guest, uh, Reverend Ben Johnson, I've thoroughly enjoyed him when I had uh, the morning show and he was a regular guest and I kind of missed him. So I thought, well, why can't I have him on the afternoon show as well? He's the managing editor of the Acton Institute and uh, he's with us now. Ben, welcome. Good to be with you, Bill. Thank you so much. Are you, uh, are you good at home improvement projects or do you just leave those to somebody else? I, I have uh, similar skills and ability, maybe not quite as good as you, but similar. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's sad, isn't it? Really, at the end of the day? Uh, like, it, it looks like a war zone. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> it's exactly. Like, like Bosnia-Herzegovina. You know? Right, exactly. You're, yeah. Exactly. All right, what's going on in California with the, the governor saying we should ban singing inside churches? What's up with that? But, he believes that he has, uh, and more, more to the point, he believes he has the authority to do so. Now, uh, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, uh, as Americans were coming back from the 4th of July holiday, on July 6th, he rolled out a state restriction saying that uh, there, there would be no singing or chanting in any worship facility, whatever, inside in the state of California. Now, the, it comes in the form of an unsigned order from the state government, which reads, and I quote, Places of worship must, therefore, discontinue indoor singing and chanting activities. Uh, first of all, you can tell this is a government uh, document because, of course, most of us don't engage in singing activities. We just sing. Uh, so there's <laughs> Good point. The unnecessary verbiage in right. and of itself, uh, making it all the more official. But, uh, but then in, a, in, in addition to that, uh, you have this word must uh, engage, dis discontinue all indoor singing and chanting. So... Uh, the state believes that it has the authority because of the spread of the coronavirus to say that either you sing outdoors or you don't sing at all. Uh, now, of course, this is the same governor who praised praise Black Lives Matter protests. So right. there was no continuity there whatsoever. Uh, and then one week later to the day on the 13th, Governor Newsom uh, said that counties that were on a state watch list for a certain period of time because of coronavirus spread not only could not sing indoors, but couldn't meet indoors at all. Uh, and uh, this order does apply to protests. It's, it specifies that protests right after worship services uh, will, will be discontinued. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but this, he's saying that churches cannot meet indoors. Now, uh, neither of these, uh, and particularly the singing and chanting, has, has no um, enforcement mechanism. Uh, there, uh, at this point, there's no one who's going door to door in churches seeing whether you are singing or not. But um, it, it raises a whole host of issues. First of all, uh, of course, there's the biblical mandate uh, from the Apostle Paul that when we meet, uh, we are to sing and chant and make melody with psalms and thanksgiving in our hearts. So uh, certain, certain churches have said, we have an apostolic decree telling us we must sing when we meet. And so the church uh, has to maintain its fidelity to the scriptures, not to uh, the government when this, when this takes place. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are safe ways that a church could sing, even indoors. Um, you know, if you're just the, the smallest bit creative, either if you're in a very large facility, uh, the, the largest um, uh, contraction that anyone has found is that uh, this could, uh, singing could 
expand the coronavirus up to about 25 feet, according to what I've read. If that's the case, then if you have the ability in a very large facility, you could put people 25 feet away from anyone else. Or uh, if you're in a smaller church, you take the four singers, put them in the four corners of the church, uh, facing away from everyone right. else, and have them sing the four parts. There's, there's right. no reason that uh, this has to be restricted, and frankly, it's none of the government's business. Amen, Ben. So the state says the singing ban is necessary to stop the spread of COVID-19, and its terms are not negotiable. Whoa. Yeah, uh, and at this point, uh, there's there's no there's no uh, threat or or um, any kind of punishment that comes from it. However, a spokesperson for uh, the state of California and the uh, public health department said that uh, it's being issued, and this is a quote, without the threat of fines and citations as the first course of action, meaning that uh, the government's going to restrict the right, uh, presumably, to fine or sanction or cite people who are singing in churches later on if and when the governor feels it becomes necessary. Now, this is chilling to me in the extreme for a lot of reasons. Uh, for one thing, in certain, certain churches and denominations, uh, we have church services, and I happen to be one of them, uh, we have church services where virtually the entire service is sung. Uh, you know, the number of spoken words you could count on on you know, basically one hand, it's, it's a matter of minutes. Everything from everyone is sung in the entire church. That's just our form of worship. It's what's been handed down to us for centuries, and it's what we maintain. Uh, so you know, our, one of the uh, leaders in a church like this, uh, Archbishop Kirill of uh, the Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia, wrote an open letter. Uh, and, of course, uh, this, these are the people who fled the Soviet Union in the 19-teens and 20s because of Soviet persecution. Uh, th these are not the group that were loyal to the Bolsheviks. These were the ones that were very hostile and fled the continent in order to get away from them. Archbishop Kirill wrote, This is open discrimination, hypocrisy, and the infringement of our religious rights, and it prompts us to recall the era of godless persecutions in the USSR. Now, when a church that fled the Bolsheviks says a government reminds them of the USSR, we'd all better pay attention. Wow, that's so true. So I know we've talked about this already, Ben, but I, I got to get back to it just because the the level of hypocrisy between closing or not allowing singing at places of worship and the treatment of the Black Lives Matters protests from this particular governor, it's stunning. Well, it is, and, you know, it, it makes you wonder. A, a cynical person could say that it had something to do with the point of view that was being expressed in these various venues. You know, obviously, Black Lives Matter, uh, and I've, I've got a whole article on this at blog.acton.org, What Does Black Lives Matter? If you go into what uh, the organization itself believes, that's not to say every activist who's associated or who uses the phrase Black Lives Matter believes this, but the organization Black Lives Matter uh, is led by people who describe themselves as trained Marxists, who say that they want to do away with the nuclear family, and uh, who, who believe in full-blown Marxism along racial lines. So uh, it, it is an extreme left-wing group, and to the extent that it's going to be playing a role in California politics, which party and which candidate it's going to be supporting uh, obviously would be on the, on the far left. Gavin Newsom would probably be an extreme conservative uh, based on where they're from, but uh, they, they would obviously be much more... Uh, positive toward that party, as opposed to, uh, say, a pro-life, pro-marriage pastor in uh, Orange County or something like that. Mm -hmm. So this, this is open discrimination. You could argue it's viewpoint discrimination. In fact, that's exactly what several churches are arguing. There are already uh, lawsuits uh, on this. 
one of them from Matt Staver of Liberty Council. Uh, Matt Staver had, of course, a wonderful uh, mind. He said there are not two First Amendments. There's only one First Amendment. There isn't one for protesters and then one for the church. Both, uh, both organizations and both movements have the exact same unalienable rights under the Constitution that if we have the right to freedom of speech, then we have the right to express that, whether we're uh, in an outdoor public protest or in an outdoor tent service worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Ben, did you hear the amount of money that Bank America pledged to Black Lives Matters? I hadn't heard the exact amount. I know a lot of organizations with very deep pockets have funded Black Lives Matter over the years. How much was it? One billion over four years. My goodness. Uh, it's, it's tremendous and it's chilling. And, you know, there's, there's a sort of pseudonymous quotation uh, that was uh, 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 placed under the name of Vladimir Lenin that uh, ultimately the capitalists will sell you the rope to hang them with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this, this kind of, and not only will they sell it, apparently they'll give it away. So, Ben, the, the, getting back to California, because, you know, Governor Newsom is, is so odd to me. I mean, he closed down all these um, wineries except his, the one he invested in. Um, but when it gets back to worship, the state, the, what authority do they have to try to direct what's going on inside churches? Well, ultimately, constitutionally speaking, they have none. Okay, that's what uh, I thought. There, there, should be, there should be no uh, constitutional restriction on what takes place as far as the government is concerned over a church. Under the First Amendment, uh, you know, of course, there are two clauses about religion in the very, uh, very beginning of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law establishing the establishment of a religion, nor restricting the free exercise thereof. Now, the free exercise clause uh, is, one could certainly argue, is being violated here because churches have the right to regulate when they meet, how many people meet, and what terms of of worship constitute uh, proper carrying out of their worship services. Now, I think that churches have a responsibility here, and I want to make that very clear. I'm not simply saying everyone rush in, hug each other, breathe in one another's faces without a mask. Uh, I think that the church has a great responsibility. And in, in fact, uh, Archbishop Carrillo in the open letter to Gavin Newsom that I quoted mentions that uh, the church actually suspended all services for a very long period of time, including Easter. Uh, and many people, uh, if they were open at all, uh, they would just have uh, the pastor and maybe one or two members of the worship team, and that was it. Everyone else would watch online. Uh, so I know a lot of churches across the board did this, uh, and uh, that's that's how they responded momentarily. But that was a church that was a choice made by the church, and the church should make that if that is uh, in keeping with its own decision and with it with its own integrity. But you know the church has a responsibility to follow all science. I think that you know, washing our hands is a good idea, regardless of whether there's coronavirus or not. Uh, it's it's something that I actually actively encourage uh, mm. throughout the year. But uh, and, and to take all measures necessary to keep the church clean and, uh, you know, in good hygiene. Uh, these are matters that we should be doing all year long. But these are things that come forth from the church as part of our responsibility uh, for the government to say you cannot meet at all or that you can only meet up to a certain capacity uh, is definitely overstepping its bounds when it comes to the free exercise clause. Unfortunately, John Roberts joined the, uh, the four liberal members of the uh, Supreme Court in May saying that the governor had the right to limit uh, attendance to 25%. I think Kavanaugh, Thomas, and, and Alito had the better part of the argument, where they said, and, uh, and Gorsuch uh, also dissented, uh, saying that 
the government does not have the, the right to do this, and that these regulations don't apply evenly across the board. They, they don't apply to cannabis dispensaries. You know, medicinal marijuana doesn't, doesn't apparently uh, spread coronavirus if you're getting together for that, protests and so on. So there's this difference. There can't be two sets of law. Either we apply it evenly and equally, and um, we, should, we should make sure that all constitutional rights are being respected. What this gets to is that you remember there is uh, this phrase that was taken out of Thomas Jefferson's letter, a wall of separation be of, between church and state. Now, that wall of separation is not constitutional, not from the original founding documents, mm. but it's been the heart of our jurisprudence since the 1940s, and particularly in the 1960s when it comes to church-state relations. But it's been clear that it was supposed to be a one-way wall, according to the founders. The state couldn't tell the church what to do, but the church could inform the culture and create a culture that informs the laws. We've reversed the one-way wall so that now... Uh, the church is not supposed to even meet, let alone to have any influence on culture, whatever, but the state can regulate the church. We've reversed the one-way wall, and that has incredible, uh, in, incredibly concerning Im implications for the church and for the state of our liberties as Americans, broadly speaking. Yeah. Ben, so wise. Oh, I have missed you. I learned so much from you. Let me take a little break. Ben Johnson is my guest. He's the executive editor of the Acton Institute. We'll be right back. Ben Johnson. He's the executive editor of the Acton Institute. Ben, you recently wrote something in your blog about uh, unalienable rights. How should we consider these unalienable rights today? Well, unalienable rights, of course, are the heart and uh, the soul of what it means to be an American, about what uh, it means to have government according to the Western tradition. Mm -hmm. Everything that the government does is it, the government's main purpose is to make sure that uh, these unalienable rights, which are God-given, are respected and that the government does nothing to violate them. That's why we had an American Revolution. That's why we have an America. That's what is at the heart of the entire Western approach to government. And uh, the Declaration of Independence, of course, is where we get this wonderful phrase that uh, we, we hold certain truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by, well, you know, the thing, with uh, <laughs> certain, certain unalienable rights. <laughs> We know, we know who the thing me. is uh, yes. uh, by our creator, obviously, this, uh -huh. and that is really what is so important at, at the heart of our government is that uh, if you were to read the Soviet Constitution when there was a Soviet Union, the Soviet Union guarantees right, of, uh, right to speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, but it always says insofar as is allowed by law. Uh -huh. So the law comes first, not the rights. We say Congress shall make no law. Because these are unalienable, and unalienable means they cannot be separated from us by anyone or anything, and any government that tries to do so becomes illegitimate. And if there's no way to redress this, there's no way to change that, then that government can be changed, and that's what the 4th of July and the Declaration of Independence is all about. There was a government commission, and it was, this is one of the smartest, uh, most uh, intellectual things that uh, the government has, has done under President Trump. 
Uh, President Trump, of course, gave that wonderful speech in Warsaw where he talked about unalienable rights, but he appointed a government commission, the U.S. Commission on Unalienable Rights, that released a very long report uh, just last Thursday. And it, it goes in great detail into uh, all of the history of this. It even, it even goes into the history of the foundation of the Constitution. Uh, it does, of course, talk about the ways that uh, these rights have been denied to certain Americans over time. But it talks about the fact that at the heart of America and at the heart of the American experiment is the idea that liberty is unalienable, it's universal, it applies to everyone. And to the extent that anyone has been left out or excluded, sometimes even by law, that law is incompatible with what it means to be an American. Uh, to the extent that I, I would ever encourage anyone to read a government report, this is the one. Wow. Uh, if you can, go to, uh, go to the State Department, which has this on its website, and it has the U.S. Commission on Unalienable Rights report, about 70 pages. And uh, unlike virtually anything else that I have seen, I, I can hardly find a, a single passage that I would quibble with. Wow, that's... That's impressive coming from you. So, Ben, you feel that our, our rights are getting constantly diminished year after year? Well, rights and government uh, are, are more or less a zero-sum game. Okay. The, greater that, uh, the greater the government increases, the more that rights are threatened, just ipso facto, because rights are unalienable and they're individual. And when the government is empowered, generally it's going to find a way, because the government is made up of fallen, sinful individuals, that government is going to reflect fallen, sinful intentions. Uh, you, know, you cannot become, you can't have a, great, a, a government that is greater than the people who are leading it, and uh, there is only one perfect individual, regardless of what Don Lamont might have believed on CNN, mm -hmm. Jesus Christ really was perfect, he's the only one, and uh, because of that, no one else can lead a government. So until he comes and puts the government on his shoulders, and uh, we all bow down before him, we will never have a perfect government that respects and empowers us in the ways that we are intended to be empowered. Uh, so in the government uh, report that I was speaking of talks about this. It says Limit, limited government is crucial to the protection of unalienable rights because majorities are inclined to impair individual freedom and public officials are prone to putting their private preferences and partisan ambitions ahead of public interest. Uh, this is not to deny the capacity for public-spirited action when, uh, on the part of people or public officials, but to recognize the need for institutional safeguards for rights because of the unalienability of uh, the unreliability of high-minded motives. So you can't always count on people uh, to act out of the greatest idea. And you know, as you just noted, Governor Gavin Newsom has uh, been accused of favoring his own wineries. Uh, of course, here and uh, also in California, Nancy Pelosi has been accused of uh, various various financial improprieties that have grown her fortune. And uh, this is true across the board. Members of both parties have been accused of having advanced knowledge and uh, playing insider trading games and things with information they have because in their capacity as government leaders, they have inside information that can benefit themselves and their family members, and they often misuse it. So anytime uh, government is involved in these sorts of things, you're going to see a penchant for cronyism mm -hmm. and a desire to punish our enemies. Yeah. Ben, when should we comply with reasonable governance? And then when do we say we, we, we obey God rather than men? Well, I, I think that we have to comply with reasonable governance whenever it is reasonable, 100 uh, percent of the time, yeah. even with things that are not necessarily reasonable. Uh, Romans 13 is very clear that the leader does not bear the sword in vain, that uh, the government rests upon uh, Jesus Christ and he has devolved that government 
uh, to people whom we must respect and obey if we are to obey Christ. And that applies even to rules and um, laws that I wish did not exist. There are you know, whole reams of paperwork that I think gov- the businesses would do better off if we didn't have to comply and it wouldn't hurt anyone or anything. There are licensure requirements that make it much easier for people to get jobs if they didn't exist. And yet uh, the government insists on them, so we obey them. But I think where, where you have to draw the line is exactly where the scripture tells us to. In Acts chapter 4, of course, the apostles were hauled before the government of their day and told not to preach the name of Jesus. They were beaten and then immediately went back and preached the name of Jesus again. I love it. And, and you know, when the government asked them, we told you not to use this name. You can preach all you want. It, it, isn't it interesting that, uh, that you can preach all the morals you want and all of the ideas that you want, as long as you don't use the name of Jesus, that powerful name that brings salvation. Uh, as long as you don't do it in the name of Jesus, you can say and believe anything you like. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they said we must obey God rather than men. And when this, there's a freedom of, res- of religion uh, restriction when it comes to the, our ability to truly carry out our faith, whether it's in church or in the public square, that law is illegitimate and should not be obeyed. Uh, and there should be general exceptions. The government has been very good about making exceptions for people whose conscience uh, does not com- uh, cannot comply with uh, these sorts of orders. But uh, if it does not give us that that uh, difference, that distinction in the law, that we have the ability to follow our conscience and to obey God rather than men, then where we come down is very clear. We side with our Savior, whatever the consequences, and we will bear them, and they will be our crowns in heaven. Mm-hmm. Ben, what would you consider to be some of the bright spots over the last six months? The last six months, uh, that's, that's, uh, these are definitely gems in the rough. <laughs> uh, I, I think part of, part of uh, this is the fact that people have, have come back to the power of faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there has been a real revival in the hearts of a lot of people, because when you have something like this, a natural disaster or something that's uh, let loose upon the public, they understand that all of, the, all of the learning and all of the science that has been accumulated through the ages isn't sufficient uh, to, to protect them. And so they turn to the one source that is still available, which is prayer. And our Lord interposes himself between ourselves and any force that would come and would be too great for us. The Lord says, I will not tempt you beyond what you are able to bear. So he always knows the limits of our suffering. Uh, He knows exactly when and where this threat will will come and subside. And so I think that that has been the greatest greatest issue. I think that also a lot of people are being awakened to the fact that uh, if, if you want to look at this as the silver lining rather than the bright spot, a lot of people are seeing that uh, government has overreached in cases like this, restricting religion or in uh, allowing lawlessness in the streets from one group. But uh, certainly if the Ku Klux Klan were going around tearing down buildings and, and looting, that would not be permitted, nor should it be. And that should be true across the board, regardless of the political orientation. Innocent people shouldn't have their house looted, regardless of the person's left wing, right wing, right. libertarian. <laughs> whatever they might be. So I think a lot of people have woken up to that as well, and more and more people empowered with that uh, gift of prayer and that faith orientation are standing up for their rights, and I think that has been the greatest bright spot. And uh, if I can add one other thing, it is that simply people are connecting through media like this, through Faith Radio. They understand the power and the importance of uh, things like Faith Radio Network and programs, ministries like this, bringing the faith into their home when they're not able to go out and worship day in and day out at their local church or assembly. So I think that the power of Christian radio has been magnified and has been amplified through these times. 
And uh, so I, I hope that uh, that has led to a greater appreciation for everything that's being done on this network and others uh, around the country that bring the word of faith into people's homes. So right on, Ben. I agree. And I, there's been so many people that have turned to, to faith radio, to Christian radio, to trying to find hope and encouragement. And the isolation is making a lot of people uh, feel very desperate for, for God and for connection. And that's, that's never a bad thing, to feel desperate for God. And so many people are coming forward to uh, to fill that void now. You know, yes. before before the uh, before the coronavirus shutdown, churches were shut up in their churches. Now, virtually every church that exists is streaming online. Right. Uh, so the power of evangelism is going forward. I think that uh, this may have been intended for evil, but it's God has used it for good, as it is this day to save many lives. Yeah, Ben, thank you so much for doing the show. It's so nice to hear your voice. You're so wise. I learn so much when you come on. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, the bribe is in the mail for those words. Oh, good. You know, you know, I'm a big fan of yours. I hope you know that. Well, and likewise, oh, I love you. what you do on the show, and and it's always so funny. Uh, I love, I love the the laughs that we get listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Thank you so much. Thank Re- you. God bless. Yeah, Reverend Ben Johnson has been my guest, executive editor of the Acton Institute. You can go to acton.org, A-C-T-O-N.org. That wraps up our show for the day. Thanks to all my guests. It's really been wonderful being with you today. I hope you have a blessed night. I will see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.